This is Warren Davis, designer and programmer of Qbert, and you are listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with Paul Drury, Richard May, and Tony Temple. Welcome to the Ted Dabney Experience. I'm Richard May, and this is a podcast project conceived largely to allow Tony Temple, Paul Drury and I an opportunity to speak at length with notable figures from the golden age of coin-op video games. A little about your hosts if you haven't tuned in before now. Since 2004, Paul Hello. has been a regular contributor to Retro Gamer magazine, and Tony Hello. is not only the proprietor of ArcadeBlogger.com, but also the Guinness World Record holder for Atari's Missile Command. I myself am an occasional collector of classic arcade games and editor and co-producer of this show. For this episode, we talk with Mr. Doug Wismer, formerly of Canadian television and arcade monitor manufacturer Electrohome. Chances are that if you've ever played a classic arcade game, either during the video arcade heyday or at any point since as a collector, you've viewed the game world through the lens of an Electrohome monitor. Doug was responsible for supplying CRT screens to the big manufacturers of the day, such as Atari, Gremlin Sega and Century. We also talk about the development of Atari and Sega's vector monitors and the industry's swift transition from black and white to colour. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review us. Your support really does mean a lot. And you can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. Please do get in touch if you have any suggestions for future episodes. Doug. Yes. Hello, sir. Hello, Doug. Doug, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, taking some time to talk with us. I wonder if we can start literally at, at the start. Could you, could you tell us a bit about how you found yourself working for Electrohome in Canada? Yes. When, uh, when I joined, uh, joined Electrohome initially, they were involved in responding to some pretty competitive positions they were finding from the Japanese. Electrohome was a manufacturer of television sets, primarily for the Canadian market. And uh, they had been quite successful for many years. But as the Japanese came to Canada and became uh, active in our market, it became obvious that uh, uh, we were going to have to become more competitive. And uh, our company decided to establish manufacturing facilities for some of our componentry in the Far East. So they went through the company and they took various uh, people who were somewhat mobile and uh, sent them all to Malaysia to set up a new plant. So this meant that about seven or eight uh, senior positions became vacant because they put senior people into Malaysia. And I filled one of those, uh, one of those positions, which was the manager of equipment engineering. We had to build a lot of the equipment. So I had a group of people that were pretty innovative in their abilities to build anything that was required. The, the influx of the Japanese manufacturers, what impact did that have on Electrohome's business? Well, when they really when they first came, um, it didn't appear to have anything too uh, too major. But after about a year or two in the market, they um, introduced a new product range. Because initially, they had introduced small TVs that someone might use in their holiday home or that type of thing, and, and nothing that we were building. Mm. Most of our dealers ended up buying 
one or two of their products along with all of ours. Uh, but when they came to the market uh, about two years after they got here, they suggested that the dealers come and take a look at their new product line, which happened to have something exactly the same as what we had at about 30% less price. Instead of a 90-day warranty, they offered a three-year warranty, and their product was available with a remote control, and that was free. Uh, that was included in the package. So um, all of a sudden, we were out of the television business. <laughs> So it, uh, it had a, a very dramatic effect on the company. I think they, they recognized that the Canadian market would be a place to learn, very much like the American market, but uh, a lot easier to study, uh, probably a lot easier to get started in. And um, when they went to the American market, they obviously uh, had one chance to do it right. So they kind of used the Canadian market as a, a test ground and got things set up properly before they went to the U.S., and just in terms of time scale, this would have been mid-70s? Yes, it was. Right. It actually was the best thing that happened to Electrohome because uh, the Americans were not aware that they were coming. So there was about a year and a half or two years where we could attempt to respond in a way that uh, we did so without people like RCA and Zenith and various other major American companies also trying to find a way to expand into new market segments. Mm. It meant we were able to position ourselves with a, a new direction by the time uh, mm. they began to, to get into the market. So we never really did see them come after us. That's interesting. So so your largest revenue stream had rather abruptly come to an end. So so what happened then? I mean, Well, it was panic, um, literally panic, um, because the uh, we went from about 300 a day down to about 30 a day uh, products being sold. The television division was the major income earner for the corporation, uh, so it uh, it really meant that we all had to look at how were we going to survive, and it, and we went into a survival mode actually at that point. So it was uh, rather interesting, challenging, mm-hmm. but uh, yes, it was a it was an interesting time. So presumably, uh, new income streams had to be sought out. How did Electrohome structure itself to go out there and find new business? Well, uh, the initial reaction to this had been uh, to um, cut costs. And uh, I I had 14 people working for me, highly technical. 90% of the cost was wages. So it was obviously I was going to have to let those people go, or at least some of them go. Mm. And uh, interesting, because I was the last one to to join the group, it was a rather intenuous position for myself to be in to be telling someone who'd been there for 25 years that he might have to go when I had just joined the company. <laughs> uh, I suggested to them that maybe we could, because we were so innovative, find a way of doing the same thing for other companies in our area. Uh, we did that. But basically what the company did is at one point they finally said, OK, we like contractual electronic design work for other companies, but... Um, they basically suggested that um, we better set up a group to figure out where we were going. And I was asked to join that group. So about five of us were set aside, figure out where the company's going and find some business opportunities for us that will support this uh, structure. We had a 100,000 square foot facility. We had engineering departments with about 100 engineers, about 250 people in manufacturing. And Mm -hmm. we tried everything we could think of. For about a year and a half, it was try things, give that up, try something else. And and, uh, eventually, uh, we sort of stumbled on the video games business. 
I understand you were thrown into the deep end and Electrohome's first foray into the arcade business was literally building cabinets? It was actually building a complete product. Okay. Um, we built the cabinet, but we, we, we didn't know anything about the industry at that time. One of our opportunities was to uh, take on a contract for a company out of Toronto. Uh, they wanted uh, 100, uh, about 125 um Pong ripoffs, basically. They came to us with the information and all we were doing was contracting to build it. Um, we did. We went to deliver it and found that they said the market's no longer there. Uh, goodbye. And uh, <laughs> I was stuck with 125 games to get rid of. And in doing so, I became enthralled in what is this video games industry? I'd better learn about it quite a way if I'm going to sell 125 games. And uh, then it became evident that um, maybe there was another opportunity here where we could do something else within that industry. Uh, so it was sort of um, being in the deep end and then trying to find a way to swim. Sure. And, and so what was the starting point in terms of looking for opportunities in this new arcade industry? Well, part of my study of this was to uh, look through some magazines, and I don't remember the titles of which ones they were, but I do did see a company called Atari, which um, didn't mean anything to me at that point, but I, I saw there was a, a name, Atari, and there was another name, uh, Steve Bristow, and uh, uh, there was a small article about something that Steve had talked about in there, uh, and that he was, I think, engineering manager. So I gave him a call, and... Uh, just told him what I was doing and that what we could do. And he was extremely interested in what we could do because he he knew that at some point they were going to need color monitors. He didn't really explain it to me at the time, but I think in the back of his mind, he realized they needed another supplier, but said he was unable to talk to me because he was heading to Chicago to a trade show, the uh, AMOA show the next day. I ended up meeting him in Chicago on uh, the following day. As a matter of fact, I thought, Best opportunity is he's he's close. I'll go and see him. And uh, from there, I was definitely encouraged to uh, work with them, which we did. Doug, it sounds like you were quite proactive there by phoning up Steve Bristow, who was the vice president of engineering there at Atari. Um, how did the conversation go uh, on the telephone? I mean, did he need some persuading to meet with you? Not at all. Um I explained to him that, you know, I, I represented a company that had been in the television industry or actually in the electronics industry for almost 70 years. Mm. So we were not a fly-by-night. <laughs> uh, we were the largest uh, manufacturer of television sets for Canada. We had all of the capabilities necessary to build any volume of product that he might have uh, a need for. And um, uh, he, I think, had had in the back of his mind that color was coming. He didn't know when, but when it was, I, I think he had uh, strategically saw they could use a, a supplier um, so that they weren't totally dependent. I think they were dependent on Wells Gardner at that point. Mm -hmm. And um, there seemed to be a, a definite interest, but his main thing, and it was only about a five-minute phone call, uh, Steve basically said, you know, we'll have to talk next week. I can't do it now. I'm just heading out, uh, but I am going to Chicago for this show. And uh, you didn't take no for an answer. So I, did you actually then go to that show? Yes, I uh, actually what I did was because we were in this this mode of um, panic, basically, <laughs> 
I could call up the advertising department and say, I need a brochure like this. I could call up the, the uh, people that were in the uh, photographic area. I need pictures. And by that afternoon, I actually had a product, uh, <laughs> a little presentation put together. I hopped on a plane and met him. I went to the, on the Atari booth and uh, sat down with him. And he looked at this stuff and he said, that's exactly what we need, um, you know, we did build a large number of commercial monitors mm -hmm. we had a, um, so that uh, we were we saw there was an opportunity in the games business for color at some point uh, were we correct and he said yes very definitely um, can I ask a little bit about Steve Bristow? He was, a, he was a major figure in the early days of Atari. In fact, he even worked on, on computer space back at Ampex and then um, Nutting Associates. And he sadly passed away in 2015. So I, I just wondered, Doug, what are your abiding memories of Steve? Um, well, Steve was, um, he was always available whenever, like we, we tended to hit it off fairly well. Hmm. I think age-wise we were about the same. Right. And um, his door was always open. Come on in and see him. Uh, he always had 10 minutes to say, okay, what's happening? That sort of thing. Uh, and I found him to be excellent. Uh, he introduced me to the right people. Uh, he um, was very open as to what he knew and what he didn't know. Um, what he, the one thing was that he said, look, I'm digital. I don't understand analog. <laughs> we have one person here that really does. He's actually a contractor, a fellow named Ed De Benedetti, who Steve and Nolan and uh, actually Steve Jobs and several people worked for Ed Benedetti uh, at Ampex prior to setting up all these companies. And they had continued to work with him because he was a, a real expert in analog circuitry. So what Steve basically said is, I don't have a spec. Talk to this guy. He'll tell you what we need. We then wrote our own spec, basically, uh, in talking to uh, Benedetti. Just one more thing about Steve. Did he have that incredible facial hair that we see in almost every photo? He sure did. <laughs> yep. Uh, it, it, it really, I wasn't quite sure uh, that's the first I'd ever seen anybody that young uh, look that old. Yeah, he, just, he was ahead of his time there. You also mentioned another famous Steve there, Steve Jobs. Um, did you actually meet Steve Jobs there in the mid-70s? I know he, he didn't have a very long Atari. Not when he was there. Uh, I met him actually at Apple because there was an opportunity to go into Apple, um, actually going down to California. Uh, once we started doing some encouraging business and engineering work and that type of thing, I would end up going down about every two weeks for oh, a year or so. I got an introduction through some of the people at Atari to the Apple people and uh, went over and, uh, and met him at that point. But his facial hair was not as good. Steve Briscoe's facial hair was better than Steve Jobs. Oh, by far. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad we agree on that. Now then, let's get back to your story. Is that the actual date of that Chicago trade show, what are we talking? We've said mid-70s, but tell us, exactly 76 or 7? Uh, it would be 75, 76. I, I'm not sure the exact date. Okay. But then how long from that initial positive meeting with Steve Briscoe, how long until you actually started selling your products to Atari? It took about um, 
uh, well, about a year and a half of uh, working with them before they came to a product that um, uh, they they had a game called Tank, yes, uh, yes. which had uh, eight players, and so it had to be in color or they wouldn't be able to differentiate the players. And um, they originally were buying those, as a matter of fact, from uh, Ed De Benedetti's company. Oh, so when I went to talk to Ed initially, uh, while my technician was talking to him about our first sample we were going to show Atari, uh, I asked him what he did, and he said, "Yeah, I sell monitors to uh, to Atari." And I thought, well, this is sort of uh, yeah, that awkward. Um, can I say a, a year and a half sounds quite a long time, particularly when Electrohome were in in a bit of a mess. Um, during that year and a half, I mean, were your bosses getting a bit nervy? Were they saying, come on, I thought you said we were going to get some orders from this company? Uh, we, yes, that was a very interesting period of time when I was trying to keep my head above water, keep everybody interested and uh, not have too many people say this is never going to happen. So was there times when you thought, you know what, this might not come to anything? No, actually, I didn't because um, I was talking to Steve and he was, I, I trusted him. I, I really did trust him. Uh, and there were other people there as well uh, that, you know, were all very encouraging. And they said, oh, it's definitely going to come. The problem is uh, we don't know if a game will generate enough money to pay for the extra cost of putting a color monitor versus a black and white into the set. Uh -huh. And once we know it's going to happen, then, you know, we'll do it immediately. It's not a, that's the only problem. It's not that we can't do it. It's a matter of will people pay for color? It was certainly, a, it was a waiting game for you. And of course it, it paid off. Um, what was it like to work alongside Atari? I mean, did you go and visit them in California? Oh yes. I was down there about every two weeks or three weeks because I was learning about Atari, but I was also learning about others. So I would stop in and see them when I was seeing someone else. And um, the door was always open as long as you brought in uh, a bottle of wine to drop off at the uh, engineering manager's desk. <laughs> we do hear it was quite a relaxed uh, party kind of culture. We, we really need to know, Doug, did you ever end up in an Atari hot tub? I did not, but I saw it. You saw it? I saw it, yeah. There, they had uh, <laughs> uh, they had just moved into the new building and... Um, so they had the hot tub. Of course, you went for the tour and, you know, we have the hot tub. We have this. We have the sleeping accommodations because some guys never leave here. Wow. It was quite interesting. Uh, it was a little hard to get in, but you could walk out with anything. Uh, the way the place was set up, it was... Uh, what do you mean you can walk out with anything? Well, you didn't have to go through security on the way that you left out. You couldn't go... <laughs> the doors locked so you couldn't go in the back door, but you could go out the back door. Okay. That sounds... That's an interesting little nugget there you told us. Doug, you've talked about supplying colour monitors to Atari. I want to ask about the XY monitors, particularly for Atari's very first uh, XY or vector game, Lunar Lander. Right. Um, how did that come about? Well, after, um, uh, let's see, when I was uh, travelling, I had a companion, a fellow named Harry Verlinden. And Harry was an excellent engineer who made everybody feel extremely comfortable. There was nothing Harry couldn't answer, support. He had all the solutions. And Harry was spending a fair amount of time uh, in their labs, fine-tuning our color monitor to meet their requirements when they were going to need them and getting over the little bumps that when you get a first product and introducing it. Uh, 
Harry came to me and he said, you know, the, these guys could use something in the way of uh, uh, an oscilloscope type monitor, an XY monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you talk to, uh, I think it was uh, probably Steve, about this this concept. When I mentioned it to him, he said, oh, can you build one of those? And I said, sure. I mean, that really, we've been building them for years within our equipment area Ah. because we made oscilloscopes out of television sets. Uh, Okay. We couldn't afford to put 50 oscilloscopes throughout the production facility, but we could take 50 television sets and turn them into oscilloscopes that did a specific task. And what were those oscilloscopes, before we get back to Atari, what were those oscilloscopes being used for? Were you supplying, what, laboratories or...? No, we had the group that I originally worked with, uh, my initial job at uh, at Electronome was equipment engineering. Uh. And that was supply whatever the production facility required in order to build television sets. And so that um, we... What we would do is build an oscilloscope out of a television set so that we now had a screen that was like 19 inches wide instead of a little three to five inch round one. Uh, We could uh, paint onto the surface of it the waveform that was required at that particular test fixture. And then the individual need not be very well trained. They just had to uh, adjust uh, various coils and that sort of thing until they got the same waveform. So, Electra Home knew how to make XY monitors. But tell us, when it came to meeting with the engineers to talk about Atari's requirements, is it true that pizza featured heavily? Yes, it did, as a matter of fact. Um, we were down there and talking about this, and it became obvious that, you know, can we talk to the right people? Nolan was just starting the uh, Chuck E. Cheese restaurant chain. Uh, And all the engineers that were available were working for him, putting that first, uh, getting that first restaurant up and running. And so it was, no, they're not available. You can't talk to them. Maybe in a month you can, you can see them. And then they said, but if everything goes right and the new restaurant is, is running properly, they'll be just standing there waiting for something to go wrong. So effectively, they may be available, they may not. It's open to all Tory employees to come and try the restaurant out because it's not officially opened yet, but it's open to Atari uh, people mm-hmm. to just exercise the restaurant. So if you want a free dinner tonight, and maybe <laughs> you're going to be able to talk. As it turned out, the design was written on top of a a pinball machine because it made a nice flat surface. We got the engineers there and Harry designed and wrote up the spec, a pad of paper and a pencil. And then he said, I'll send you a copy. And they said, that's fine. You know, we understand you know what you're doing. Wow. And uh, we finalized it. But no, the the actual initial spec was written on the uh, pinball machine. That's just fantastic. And perhaps brings us up to that when Atari asked you as Electrohome to produce something for them, like, you know, the monitor that would go into Lunar Lander, would go into Asteroids, some of their biggest games. Yes. Could you basically supply anything they asked for? Or did you sometimes have to say, yeah, we're not going to be able to do it like that? Well, we had to um, we had to understand what it was they were trying to do with it because we were building XY monitors to do a very specific task in our production. And uh, Harry had to become quite familiar with how they were driving these things. Um, actually, I've learned a little bit more about uh, the last little while about why they uh, have had 
we had a few problems as we went along because we found that they were uh, driving these in quadrants beyond the screen, above or below or to the left or to the right, uh, which was effectively overdriving the monitor. <laughs> and um, when you're doing that and then you're going from the extreme left to the extreme right, you're throwing some very large spikes at the uh, various drive transistors, and in some cases, you will blow them. Uh, so we had to uh, do a lot of things to try to make it more robust. Did you actually meet any of the people working on those games? Howie Delman, Rich Moore, Ed Logg. Did you actually go in and see the games being developed? on your screens? Um, yes, we did. Howie, I remember that name. Um, uh, yes, we did go in and, uh, and see them because obviously they, uh, the, the, first, the first unit didn't work the way they wanted it to. It never will. You, you give them the best shot. And so Harry would go down, take a product in. He would work with them on it. Uh, I would periodically stop in and see what was going on. Uh, I stayed out of the, the actual technical evaluation of the product, but uh, I was obviously very interested in where they were going. And uh, they were the sales or not the um, uh, the engineers are always the best source of information for sales. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to go in and talk to the engineers about, you know, where's this thing going to go? How big is it going to be? When is it going to happen? All that kind of stuff. And uh, they were they were an excellent source of general background information as to uh, what could happen if this thing really hit. Did you go, particularly when Asteroids became their biggest ever coin-op, did you go into arcades and wander around and say, I helped make that? Uh, my major thing was uh, dealing with trying to keep you know, the engineering and the management happy there, mm -hmm. trying to keep production producing the quantities and trying to arrange for uh, the shipping requirements that, that were necessary, particularly when we were shipping to, uh, to Ireland, ah, yeah. which it eventually became one of the factors. Uh, at one point, um, we were the, the largest user of Air Canada's uh, air freight beyond, so we were number two. The uh, Royal Mail was number one and we were number two as far as priority because we were filling the bellies there's no shame being in second place to the Royal Mail. <laughs> so how much actual business in dollars did you do with Atari over the years? Um, I know we did a, a little over $200 million worth of business in total, but that was we did Midway and Pac-Man and, you know, they, they were little games as well. Yes. <laughs> uh, so how much went to Atari? I'm not sure, but I'd say they were they probably represented... 50% of our business. Please, Doug, tell me that you got a bonus for starting this whole relationship off. Uh, I did. Um, I was actually, uh, it was interesting. I was, after we got this going and things were going quite well, the Wells Gardner people asked me if I'd like to come and work for them. <laughs> And uh, so I went for my boss and I said, look, I don't know what's going to come out of this. I'm going to go down and talk to them. And if I come back and I decide to go with them, um, you know, I'll pay for the ticket. <laughs> and uh, if not, it's the best source of information we're ever going to find out about Wells Gardner. <laughs> so I came back to my boss and I said, look, I'll tell you right now, I'm not going, uh, but I do know what I'm worth. And it's not what you're paying me. <laughs> Good for you. Doug, with Atari firmly under your belt as a customer, who else did you approach and uh, and how did you go about it in those days? Well, actually, during that two-year period or two to three-year period when we were waiting for the industry to go between black and white into 
flip over to color, uh, I was working directly with the president of, of Midway. Right. Um, and uh, with the head of engineering at Gremlin. Um, we did a few things at Valley, but that was fairly small at that point. Uh, there were other companies that uh, were there, but they were pretty small. Uh, they didn't really get too involved. It was it was really the the Midways, the Gremlins, and the uh, Ataris that were the they were the three top of about seven. But I had dealt with all of them. Yeah, they were the big boys, but presumably during those times, arcade manufacturers and, 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 and video game entrepreneurs were ten a penny, I would imagine, popping up left, right, and center. They were. Um, some would call us. Um, what I had done initially was when I when I first went, or the second or third time I went to California, I decided I would go and visit every company that was on a list that I got from a magazine. I didn't know who they were, and uh, some of them were obviously Atari was very impressive, Midway was very impressive, mm. Gremlin was very impressive. Some of them we had to meet in a restaurant because he didn't have an office. Mm. Uh, but I got to know who they were and could list them and say, okay, this is the ones that I want to spend time with. And the others, well, we know what they are and we know where they may be. Mm. But we were working with um, the other manufacturers, and that's where Gremlin came along and said, this is the year that we're going to... They were the ones who really said they're going to bite the bullet. They put color, all right. the products that they introduced at yep. the MOA show were color, mm. and that's when everybody else said, hey, we got to do it. That's a really interesting insight into that key turning point of the industry, going from black and white to color. And uh, I guess it's even more interesting that it was a smaller or small to mid-sized player like Gremlin who instigated proceedings. Yes, they said they were going to do this, and that they, uh, you know, they said it's a, we're going to flip the disc, or we're going to we're going to make the investment, we're going to see what happens, and hopefully we're we're not wrong, but we think the industry's ready. And uh, it was, uh, I think it was probably about 11 o'clock the first day of the show that um, I was pretty well inundated by the senior members of the staff of Atari and Midway saying, you know, we're going to start buying. We'll be back to you with how many, but uh, how many, you know, do you think you can give us 10,000 or 20,000 or something like that? So Doug, thinking about those, um, those large orders for specific games, um, as Paul's mentioned, Asteroids, which was a huge, a huge hit for Atari and uh, and Pac-Man, um, obviously for Midway. Was this literally a case of the uh, the phone ringing off the hook and you guys struggling to meet demand? Um, it was not that difficult. Um, the the thing was the the company Electrohome had about a hundred thousand square foot facility, which was extremely underutilized because they had been a very um, they were vertically integrated to the point that they built everything pretty well in-house to build the television set except the picture tube. They built the cabinets, they built the metalwork, they built all the coils and they built all the wiring, they did everything for it. And so that um, when they started buying product from Japan, um, a large portion of the facility was no longer required and a large portion of the manufacturing capability, say in our metalwork division, was no longer required and in other areas. So your chassis your chassis were built in Japan, I believe, but the tubes were sourced where where you were? That's right. Right. Yes. The there was uh there were a lot came from the States, uh, but there was also a, a manufacturer, uh, Mitsubishi, uh built a factory in uh, Midland, Ontario, which is not that far from our facility. It's about a hundred and some miles away. And they produce picture tubes there. And so uh, what we did is we, we decided to buy the chassis 
um, rather than make it because the television division had years before uh, found that the only way they could still stay in business was to work with the Japanese rather than against them and had already come to a, a very strong working relationship with JVC. Mm. So when I went to them and said, hey, guys, I think we've got you know the world by the tail here, but I need help. Introduce me to the right people. Um, they were able to take me directly to the senior people at JVC. And I, I came with a degree of uh, credibility that I would not have had if I had just knocked on the door and said, hey, I'd like to buy 10, 20, 30,000 chassis from you because our television group was already buying 10 or 20 or 30,000 chassis. So mm. there, was, there was credibility. Mm. Uh, we paid our bills. And so... Uh, they really did want to work with us. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about JVC and um, your interactions with them. How different was it from a business perspective dealing with uh, Japanese culture versus the Hawaiian shorts of California? Oh, day and night. Um, with JVC, it is all relationships. And that, that can take a long time to develop. You might have a four-day meeting and three and a half of those four days will likely be on things that aren't what you really wanted to cover, but they're essential that they understand, can they trust you? Uh, do you know what you're doing? Mm-hmm. And uh we developed a very good working relationship with a few people there. It was a, a real culture shock, I guess, on my part, because I had not dealt with them previously, mm-hmm. but I found it to be uh, very, very interesting. Yeah, it, it sounds like you, you spent a long time nurturing that relationship. Was there ever a point where you had to um, do anything drastic to protect that relationship? Uh, yes, there was. Um, I was in my office one day and I received a, a phone call from one of the buyers at Atari who happened to be in um, Korea. And he said, we've been here for a couple of days. We're going to Japan tomorrow and we'd like to go and visit JVC while we're there. And uh, I thought putting my customer with my supplier may represent a problem. So I just said, well, that's strange. I'm actually going to be there tomorrow. I'll be glad to take you. They said, okay, you know, and uh, I said, no, I'll set it up and uh, be glad to. That'll work out really well. Didn't know you guys were over there. (laughs) And then I called my secretary and said, get me a ticket. I got to go to Japan immediately. It's also an interesting insight into how far Electra Home had come by that point where you could literally drop everything, jump on a plane and fly to Japan to, you know, protect your relationship with JVC. Whereas presumably a few years before, it was probably quite difficult to justify a plane ticket to a trade show in Chicago. It was impossible almost to uh, getting to the trade show in Chicago the first time I was told later on that that ticket was actually paid for by the president out of his money. Wow. Um, we had a, a very interesting um, management team. Uh, Electra Home was a family company, and the member of the family who was the president at the time that I was there, because it had been his father previously, was an engineer. And he had uh, a great understanding of entrepreneurship, and he was always interested in the new and different and opportunities so that he was prepared to make investments and do things that I don't think an accountant would have justified uh, at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was just an excellent individual to work for. So when if you came back with some goods, which we eventually did, then he just stepped aside and said, do what you got to do. Don't ask, just do it. It was excellent. And how was um, how did you find Japan 
I found it to be really interesting. Uh, at the time I was there, uh, the Japanese were not very good. Like Japanese companies were not good at selling products to North America. They dealt through trading companies, mm-hmm. and so that the trading company would provide uh, all of the the arrangements with respect to um, any travel that you did. They supplied interpreters who would sit in on the meetings. They did all the meeting notes. They provided all the financing that was necessary to handle the, uh, the, the transactions. And so you became very dependent upon them because they they were your guide. They were also um, you know sort of the, the go-between with the companies. And JVC, on the other hand, knew that they needed to deal through these companies because they hadn't developed any offices themselves in North America. Mm. Everything was happening through the trading companies at that point. It's totally different than the way it is now, mm. but at that point, that was the only way you could do it. And, and I find it interesting that JVC didn't go direct to the source themselves. So was there a reason why JVC didn't sell their products straight to the States with regards to arcade manufacturing? Well, there were two reasons, I think. One was we had developed a relationship in our television group. Uh, They also were very ethical. But there was something I learned about quite a few, actually a few years after that, that um, apparently the emperor had at some point made a comment about video games being bad for the the youth of the country and uh, something best not to be seen as a major manufacturer providing product to that industry. Hmm. So by supplying product to us, and we supplying it to the industry, they got the business, but they didn't have to uh, answer any questions about why they were doing it. Wow. Also, they at that point did not really understand the North American market as well in that area as they do now. So that um, they recognized their strengths and weaknesses and selling into the North American market on a an OEM basis was not one of their strengths at that point. So we, we each needed each other. It wasn't something that uh, I never felt at all exposed. But the interesting thing was that when we had meetings, and that would happen every year where you would go and say, okay, what's the new chassis? What are you doing? And, you know, this is what we need to accomplish. Uh, Over three quarters of that would be telling them about what the market was doing so that they would have confidence internally to make the investment that was necessary to give me the volume I required. Okay. And so that they wanted to know a lot more about my business, not so they could take it over, but so that they felt comfortable that A, they were giving me what I needed, and B, there was a justification in their mind that this was a good use of time and energy on their part. Doug, let's bring you back from the Far East. Let's bring you let's bring you closer to our shores and Tell us about Atari Island. I believe when you went over there, you literally saw people sitting around with nothing to do because they did not have enough color monitors to fit into their cabinets. Is is that the case? Yes, that was the case. Um, because we were we were shipping on a Friday, uh, we would end up making a shipment per week. Mm. Um, so at the at the end of the week, you know, we would be getting calls. You are going to ship whatever the quantity was to make sure they're coming because we've built I don't know two hundred or two hundred and fifty or whatever it was. They're sitting here. Mm. You know, they wanted to make sure that we weren't going to be leaving them uh, hanging without enough product. And so we would get a few calls like that. Um, so at one point, point, I uh, was always pushing production to see if they could get a larger quantity because the 
problem was we were shipping everything by air, mm. and we were hoping to be able to ship some by sea. So if we could get enough product ahead, we could buy some time uh, to eventually switch it over to sea, and they could save quite a bit of money doing that. Mm. Um, so I was working with the, the union and uh, production people, and they... Um, they were kind of skeptical. You know, was I pushing them to get more commission selling product? I don't mind the commission, but the customer really wants them. So I decided to hop a plane and follow a shipment in order to uh, see just what did happen. Okay. I was only in Ireland once uh, for the facility there because everything was purchased through California and uh, it was just shipped to Ireland. So uh, I had no reason to go there other than curiosity. Would it be fair to say that the arcade industry saved Electrohome back in the day? Uh, I think very definitely uh, for a period of about four years, uh, it was the major money earner for the company. Yeah. Uh, and during that period of time, uh, the company made some rather significant investments in new product because we, we realized that uh, this was something that would not continue at this rate forever, and it and it didn't. No. Um, and so that uh, we started investing very heavily into projection. And today there's a company, Christie Digital, which is a company that has bought the projection portion of Electrohome. Yeah. Uh, but they're uh, one of the world's largest suppliers of uh, very bright projectors for either movie theaters or large uh, venues like uh, the uh, Beijing Olympics, that sort of thing. All the projectors in there were all Electrohome. Okay, and by the same token, would it be fair to say that Electrohome enabled the success of the arcade industry, given the amount, given the fact that you supplied Atari, Gremlin, uh, Midway, and and a host of other video game companies, would that be fair to say? Well, I, I think, you know, it it was a commodity that we were uniquely able to produce in very large quantities because we had the facilities and we had the, everything we needed was available and we also didn't have anything else to do with that, with that asset so that, you know, everyone jumped on board and said, yes, we'll do it. Uh, so yes, we were able to respond very fast and that was something that industry absolutely required. They didn't need it until tomorrow, but then tomorrow they did need it. So it was the sort of thing where we need your help to make sure we hit the targets for very short lead times. Joe, at what point did you sense that this very lucrative business had kind of hit a wall? Well, there were two things that we became aware of. Um, when I saw business coming in, you know, it was not uncommon to get a an order for $20 million worth of monitors or something like that. So, I mean, it was large, large numbers. Wow. And um, if any of those had gone wrong, all that we had accomplished could be definitely lost. If we had $20 million worth of monitors and they called up and said, we don't need them, what am I going to do with them sort of thing? So we had, um, at one point, well before the end did come, I'd asked management to assign a credit manager to us whose job was only to look over my shoulder and say, what if? Because I wanted to go 100% push product, but I needed somebody that knew what they were doing to investigate the what ifs and wave some flags. And uh, he was helpful in, in spotting downturns in the market, but we had also established relationships right at the top so that uh, you, you had a pretty good idea of what was going on. And I, I did get a call from the head of Gremlin Industries, which was then Sega, and uh, 
he had uh, Jerry Hansen was his name. Jerry was a was the head of engineering, and we had become very good friends. And uh, Jerry called up and he said, "Guess what? They called me the other day and said they want to buy my stock. We're selling out, and uh, we're doing it immediately. Ooh. And uh, <laughs> you know, it's got to be done this week." Well, about a week and a half later, the bottom fell out. They had spotted enough that they they did step aside. Wow. That's almost insider dealing. Well, yeah, I mean, it was the sort of thing where we didn't do anything other than we were just uh, recognizing it's changed. Uh, we weren't selling anything. We weren't, I didn't profit from it. What we did was we didn't make a mistake by putting more product in stock because it, at one stage along that way, I would obviously, I would have to commit ahead to get um, maybe thirty to 40,000 chassis made up because they did come in by sea, and uh, so I might have a headwind of, of several chassis out there. Well, that gradually decreased as the time went on, but uh, we had to be careful. Of course, this was a business for you. You were selling a product, but um, all of us, <laughs> the three people that are doing this podcast and all the people that are listening to it, these weren't just products. These were games that we, we cared about. Yes, I wonder, did you have that sense? Did you have sense that you were producing something that would be a huge part of someone's childhood and then <laughs> something that might be um, you know, reminisced about 30 years later? Uh, well, I, I saw the impact of the product and uh, the enthusiasm for it. And I obviously saw it in... Uh, I was never a great games enthusiast myself, but my son was, and I could see what he was doing. Uh, I could see what others were doing. Um, at one point, Atari uh, said, look, you guys are doing a fantastic job. We'd like to give you a few games. They gave us a lunar lander, I think it was, or an asteroids, but they set it up so that they didn't need a coin. And it was not uncommon to see the lift truck driver stop, get off, play a game, get back on and go on off and <laughs> And you know, Doug, any kind of nostalgia for the um, for the specific glow, I, I would say, of, of an old CRT monitor compared to a modern LCD or LED screen, or is it pretty much just business for you and uh, whatever a TV screen is a TV screen, and you change with the times? Well, I'd, I'd have to tell you that I I've enjoyed the games and I enjoyed what could be done. Uh, I really had nostalgia more for the XY monitor than I did for the color monitors that were there. Okay. Uh, and the, uh, that one particularly because we had been, in that case, we built everything. I, I guess I had more skin in the game when that one came along. And I enjoyed the way the, uh, like, asteroids would float and that type of thing. It was uh, so different from a standard jerky uh, Pac-Man or something along that line. XY vector monitors are not were not known for their reliability so can you speak to that because many Atari alumni will raise a hand and go hey man this stuff had a limited lifespan because it kept crapping out on us the flybacks kept dying and and we just could not keep this thing going and we just had to move on uh, and as much as as amazing as that technology was it was very much of its time yeah, it was, uh, I think we didn't get a lot of feedback about issues that people were having. And that okay. was something that I've learned more from these discussions than I have from remembering people coming to me and, uh, you know, complaining about the fact of reliability or long term. Uh, we had a problem with the, um, the color XY monitor that we produced for Gremlin or for Sega. In that case, we were working with a larger picture tube. We were working with a lot more power, and we had three beams that we were working with there. Mm. Um, 
and they did overdrive the system way beyond the, the spec that was there because they didn't know better and we weren't watching them that close. Uh, the first 5,000 that were in the field, every one of them had to be repaired in the field. Um, that cost uh, a few million dollars. Right. Yeah, there's a gentleman called um, Todd Tucky, and he heads up a company called TNT Amusements. And I personally send a few of my games through him, and he will not touch a Sega XY monitor. Atari stuff, he'll be like, yeah, fine, send it my way. Sega stuff, um, for example, a game called Taxcan, um, and they had um, they had a system called, I believe, Converter Cab, and he he just said to me, "I ain't touching no Sega stuff. It's too much hassle." I mean, obviously, that's now in 2020, but I think even back in the day, as you allude to, they that was an issue. Well, we had a problem there that the the um, flybacks were creating such a high spike that we literally could not find at one point while we were trying to solve the problem, we couldn't find a transistor that could take it. And then we found that while we were doing this, um, a unit or one design got taken off of the military spec and was brought to the commercial side, and we were able to buy it. And that one could take the uh, the energy spikes. And uh, we ended up having to replace all of the drive transistors that were used for deflection in all of the units in the field. At that point, Electrohome had 22 uh, repair facilities. So what we did is uh, they took one tech from every office across Canada, gave me 22 techs, and um, we shipped parts to the facilities because the games had been moved from the production facility at Sega to their distributors. But we said, don't ship many further. We sent technicians out to each one of those locations. They did a repair in the field. Uh, Doug, this this conversation's been great, and obviously we've we've really just sort of focused in on that sort of six year period, I guess, between sort of seventy eight and eighty four, eighty three, eighty four. I just wondered what what happened to Electra Home after that, and where did you where did you take them after the arcade industry no longer required your services to the extent that they did? Well, um, as I said, the company was smart enough to recognize that this was not going to be a, this wasn't a 20-year business. This was a four, five, maybe six-year business uh, because we saw that there were things happening. Uh, people were going to be able to play games at home. They may not be playing as many on the on the arcade uh, coin-op, that type of thing. And so we had very heavily invested into the development of data projectors. Uh, they were used in a lot of installations, but in the earlier stages, uh, they were primarily military which meant that every military around the world was quite interested in the products. And it was a nice type of business because when you sold it to the military, it went in the door and never came out. We supplied a lot to the UK, uh, Harrier training, that sort of thing, okay. uh, where they used, uh, they used projectors for that. They did for, uh, uh, I'm not sure what they called it in the UK, but it was like the uh, shoulder firing missile. They had to, uh, the operator had to be able to learn how to make uh, judgments as to what he could or could not do. Uh, and that was a simulator where he was able to simulate uh, uh, which targets he would pick out, which ones he could get uh, and practice. And uh, they made simulators out of some of these projectors as well. But um, that business was accepted all over the world. So after I started sort of getting away from selling monitors, 
for the games industry, this product, which was now international as well, I became then the manager of international sales and started taking those all over the world. So it gave me a chance to go. Uh, I didn't go behind Iron Curtain, but I did go to all the countries in Europe, uh, all throughout the uh, Far East, Middle East. Uh, so I did a lot of traveling at that point. I think it's very impressive that Electra Home had the foresight to make contingency plans once they got a sniff that the arcade industry was about to implode on itself because many manufacturers got caught up in the hype and um, you know ended up with their trousers around their ankles, financially speaking. Yeah, when the television industry died, um, you know we were, as I say, building 300 a day then when you stop building 300 a day and you start buying from somebody else, our inventory of components was huge that all of a sudden had no value. So the company was always aware of the fact that when things go down, they can go down pretty fast. So having been bitten once, it became obvious, you know, what, what's happening here? Let's look ahead. And uh, it was probably, again, something the Japanese did for us. When they came into Canada, they taught us a very difficult lesson, but it was a lesson that saved us from making more mistakes than maybe other companies might have made. So our our final question for you is, uh, we're hoping you can perhaps give us a treasure map of where we might be able to find a rundown factory somewhere in the, in the wilds of Canada, where we could <laughs> find floor-to-ceiling boxes of new old-stock Electrohome 19-inch colour monitors. We'd be very appreciative if you could let us into the secret. <laughs> kind of got that impression when we were talking the other day, and I'm not aware of it. But what I will do, there are some people that I could ask, and I'll do a little digging and see if there might be something that they're aware of. That'd be great. Then you need to ring Air Canada and get us a special deal on shipping, and then we'll, we'll all be laughing. Well, I don't think you're going to find that many. <laughs> it's not what you know, it's who you know. Doug, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been um, insightful to say the least. We are very appreciative. Um, and thank you so much. Uh, likewise, Doug, thank you so much for coming on, even though I've spent many an hour gnashing my teeth and swearing at my XY monitors when they've gone pop. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. You're welcome. Um, your, your insight and stories have been captivating. Thank you so much for sharing them with us. Well, thank you. Doug, thanks. That was an absolute pleasure. If you're used to playing video games from the golden age on an emulator, it's easy to forget that they're actually physical machines and they wouldn't have worked without screens. So thank you for being a big part of all those fantastic memories we've got. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury and arcade blogger Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.
Thank you.